unique in terms of the actual school environment. Four years that I was there on the lacrosse team, I was the only black player. Your teammate at the academy also helped you through the rigors that you go through at the academy itself. Players on my team were clearly behind me, and they would take care of me in any situation. Welcome to the Fred Opie Show, where you learn how to make a difference on and off the field. I'm your host, Fred Opie, an athlete turned author, producer, professor, and editor. I use my story and the stories of others to help you figure out what your gifts are, find the right places and activities to develop them, and give you a plan to give, save, and spend your money and time wisely. You know, I think the importance of sports I certainly learned about was, you know, the idea I got your back. I don't care if you're playing football, basketball, communication, and having somebody's back is critical. And I think that's true on and off the field. And parents, teaching your children how to make good decisions. Now, I've always said that that frontal cortex is not completely uh, aligned and together. So children are making executive decisions that in the most instances are very impulsive. And you need to get them to think about the questions behind their decisions, the consequences behind your decisions. But you got to teach them to do that. You can't make every decision for your child, but you have to have your child uh, processing things in a way where they are thinking about the long term consequences of the decision about to make and allow them to fail. Failure is a great teacher. And so we're going to talk to uh, Dan Williams who was a Division I athlete himself at West Point Military Academy. And his son was a wide receiver at Washington State University and actually an NFL prospect. Tell us about your experience at Hempstead High School. You guys had an all-African-American team, but also at West Point as a way of educating listeners and strategizing on how to deal with haters and support teammates who encounter them. Hempstead High was, uh, when I went there, roughly about uh, 95-97% African-American high school. So there was very little uh, both diversity in the school as well as within the athletic program. The athletic program was, you're right, when we went to sporting events, it was all black athletes, and, uh, and everyone knew that. Most of the teams that we actually played out on Long Island were quite the opposite. While they had, may have had some diversity, when going to games, you'd have fans that would make racial comments, African jungle bunnies. You'd, you'd hear all those type things being called at you while you were in the stands. If you played on the varsity team, you were sure to have a, uh, a white coach. You know, Don Ryan, who actually worked within the uh, community with the, with the kids while growing up, uh, Hank Lundy, uh, Al Hodish. Um, they were all aware of what you were going to face when you went to those games. And they tried to prepare you and talk to you a little bit about it. First time going outside the community and being faced with that, it was, it was a bit of a scary, uh, but to me it was a bit of a, a scary situation. My upbringing was, and also the way the coaches and, and stuff were trying to tell you, is that you proved your point on the field. At the end of the day, it's the scoreboard. And what you what you put out there in the field. Try not to get into a uh, a fist fight because that wasn't gonna that wasn't gonna do you any good either. Because ultimately, uh, unfortunately, you were gonna get blamed. So if you got into a fist fight, 
90% of the time, uh, we didn't have cameras and stuff with us those days to, uh, to catch the video of who actually started what. Um, it was going to be assumed that it was the, the black team that came in there that started it, whether it was a, a home event and or away event. If there was a fight, 90% of the time, 95% of the time, everyone automatically assumed it was the, uh, the black teams that were the ones that, or our team was the one that initiated and or our fans were the ones that initiated the fight, a fight that may have occurred in the stands as a result of someone saying something. How often did that did that actually happen, where fights broke out on the field because some racial epithet was said by an opponent or by a fan in the stands? We're not talking about the 1970s. You graduated in what year? I graduated from high school in 82. I said 25, 30% of the time. Someone may have said something that initiated someone throwing throwing a fist or whatever, trying to trying to get at you. But there were I can I can also tell you that there were a lot of stuff that was said on the field. I mean, I played lacrosse, but I I also played football. For me, it, it occurred more in football than it did with lacrosse. And you you had larger crowds. Same thing. Um, I would say with the larger side events and venues you had a bigger chance of something occurring, and it probably occurred more there than it did on the lacrosse field. It did rear its head on lacrosse. You know, you'd have, you'd have someone that would say something out on, the, out on the field at you, but the thing that you would try to do is, you know what, you hit them a little harder. I, I played defense, I was usually a little bit bigger, and you, you'd whack them a little harder, and you, 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 you'd knock them down, and you, when you knock them down, you stood over them, and you say, did you say something? The, the way that you get through it is through education. You, you still need to get your education to get yourself to get out of it. Uh, 95, 98% black school at Hempstead High was not rated as a, a, a very well-known school for its academic prowess, you know, while, uh, while going there. A lot of those really good athletes really didn't go anywhere because they didn't put the time in um, from an educational standpoint. You get a handful that, that actually make it, but there were... There were so many more good athletes that were at our school that could have gone on to do uh, great things. They just didn't um, perform in the classroom. That's the key to how you overcome it. Hempstead High School in the 1940s and 50s was one of the top high schools in the country. But after the close of Mitchell Air Force Base, Hempstead experienced what I call white flight. I call it green flight or capital flight because some of the most educated uh, African-Americans who had the ability left the school district to either put their kids in private schools or move to another district. So this is not just about race. I think it's more about class than anything else. What was the difference for you? Your parents stayed in Hempstead. They raised you in Hempstead. I'm thinking of Reggie Terry. I think about a number of people like Reggie who went on to be a parade All-American, played football at Syracuse University, played lacrosse for me when I was a high school coach in Hempstead. What was the difference for families like the Terry's and, and your family? And why did you guys end up having those opportunities while everybody else fell between the cracks? I would also think it comes back down to parenting. We were, I'd say, low middle class, but I never felt like we needed anything. But once a year, we would try to do a vacation or try to do something special. Being able to expose you to some of the opportunities that are out there once a year it's enough to get you motivated enough that you're going to want it more for yourself 
and for your kids. You know, he motivated me to say, you know what, I like what I see. The way that I'm going to be able to do it is by, you know, by hard work. Hard work comes in the classroom. The classroom, from an educational standpoint, both playing hard in the field and playing uh, and, and doing what I needed to do uh, academically. You know, I saw that as a way out, uh, you know, starting in eighth grade. I knew my parents were going to have a hard time both paying for college. I started focusing on how do, how do I, how am I going to be able to help them help me? You know, you, you, you look for sports, look for your, the sport that was going to, that was going to get you up. Regardless of the school that you go to, even if the academics, they say the academics are bad, there's usually some good team. And I sought out, I sought out the good team. I didn't let them seek the eyes. I sought them out. And it, it's about taking charge, taking charge of your own destination. But I also looked for teachers that I knew that cared for students. Sought them out, made sure I ended up in their classes and did well with them. I didn't know I had to take an SAT until halfway through my junior year. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, I started applying college and said, well, you got to take these SATs, the ACT test. That was the first I heard of it. I went to my guys, I said, what's an SAT? It's not just the academics in class that I got to do. Now I got to take this test to try and figure out, am I going to be able to get in college, you know, with this test? We hadn't been taught in Hempstead how to take SAT. So when I first took the SAT, I want to say 840, 900, somewhere in there. So if you're a coach, you got a great you got a great athlete, but he's not applying himself, and or he just doesn't even understand. You might have went the college coach, but this kid is clueless about SAT, GPA, the importance of going to school. Raised by the grandmother, grandparents who have never gone to college. I don't even know if they finished high school, and a school is interested in him, but the the grandparents are reluctant to send him away. I don't want him going off like that. I don't want him to become a white boy. I don't want him. I don't know if they can handle it. I don't know if I can afford it. What do you say to the coach who is trying to expose the kid to the college opportunities and expose the parents or grandparents to, look, this is a great opportunity for you, but this may mean this kid has to go two hours away from you and you may only see them on holidays. Try to get the grandparents, one, to visit the school. Get them out there to meet your staff. Those are the things that they, they, they may have to do for those one or two students where they have that parent or grandparent who's never been exposed to something like that. And then also really have that sit down with the grandparents and say, listen, get a chance to, to grow, to be able to be exposed to something that's going to allow him to be better, you know, grow out and get put himself in a better position both to himself his future family, your quote unquote, your future grandkids that he may have. Coaches who are recruiting these kids, whether it be to the prep school or the colleges, they're not thinking about the, the safety factor. I grew up in a small town, mostly white folks. My parents moved from a town that had a, a rather large population of black folks uh, to my hometown to give me better education. Now, my mother, she remembers growing up in the, you know, in the 1950s where she couldn't be a cheerleader because she was black. It just, that just, they didn't have black children. But she did not know what was going on in the schools with me and the kind of cultural uh, combat I had to deal with folks. You know, so the ideal 
of sending these kids to this private school or in many cases in Baltimore, you have these places where prep school coaches are going into these into the hood and finding the best athletes, whether it be basketball, football, lacrosse, and getting them to come to those schools. But they don't know what those kids have to deal with. My mother, one of the mantras she told me growing up in the 1970s, 70s, and early 80s was, don't bring home no blue-eyed Susies. Don't come home dating no, no white girls. Why? She was scared for my safety. What would some racists say if they saw me walking hand-in-hand with some white girl and there was nobody around and now they decided it's time to be emboldened and put me in my place? That still exists. You know, a lot of people feel that, oh, we're so far past that. We're not. You still have people that are getting beat up for those or at least, uh, uh, you know, ridiculed a lot for those same reasons. People feel empowered again to be able to say those things, and it seems to come out. We, we know how to protect them in this environment. You're trying to send him to this other environment where he has no idea of what to expect, or he's got no other friends mm-hmm. um, other than you saying that you're going to take care of him. Well, how are you going to take care of him? I need to see how you are going to take care of them. I need to be sure that he has resources or someone to go to, someplace to go, to make sure that he's not going to end up still as another statistic, even once I, once I let him go there. No one's going to feel, be able to feel empowered to take him out. Physically, are they going to be okay? Emotionally, they're going to be okay, because when you are one of the few which you were and I were in college in the 1980s, many times you're on your own. I can tell you, off the field, I didn't hang out with the guys on my team from Syracuse because they had a whole different definition of fun. And they had yep. they had more spaces where they could go to have fun. West Point's a bit, a, a bit unique in terms of uh, the actual school environment. You know, the, you know, the, the four years I the four years that I was there on the lacrosse team, I, I I was the only black player. Your teammates at the academy also helped you through the rigors that you go through at the academy itself. Mm-hmm. Just the the challenges that you do there. So they help you get through some of those that are you know it's not about the going out and partying, but being able to take care of you within that environment. You don't really see the 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 the, the race car being played there. Throughout the four years that I was there, I had, there were three events. These were fan related. And one specifically where some of the players on the team actually heard a fan that was behind the bench say something. The fan ended up uh, having to move because a couple of players uh, heard it and they were going to go after the fan. I can truly say that the players on my team were clearly behind me and they were quote unquote my brothers and I, I could, they would take care of me in any situation. You know, if, if you are on a team and you see your, your teammate, I don't care if he's black, I don't care if he's short, I'm not sure, whatever the reason is for people to act the fool and go after that person, you need to stand up for him. And I think you also need to realize that there are some spaces that you go into I mean, it could be the situation reverse, where, you know, you're on a football team, yep. and the majority of the guys, or a basketball team, the majority of the guys are, are black, 
you can't just bring some white cat on your team into any old space. It's not as safe as people necessarily think. So the fact that they came to your aid, I think is really important. Being silent is being complicit. You need to stand up and say that is not acceptable. Whether a better job or a good job in terms of looking out for one another. They truly need to try and put themselves in other person's shoe. A lot of the players that I played with were conscious of it, that all-black team, and then going into the complete opposite where, okay, now I'm, I'm the only black person. Kind of get the, do I really belong here? How am I going to fit in? How am I going to just find my space here? Try and prove yourself on the, on, on the field or whatever. But you also, you still have to have that social outlet, have that social interaction with your, your, your teammates. I, I don't know if it was just the consciousness of the guys, but a lot of them, when we went in, if we, we, we did go out, they tried to make sure it was, I was okay with where we were going. And that was something I appreciated. The conversation is a shout out to the makers of the movie. Remember the Titans with Denzel. It's one of my favorite movies. Uh, talking about these kind of issues of, of hatred that are race-based that happen in sports. Please email me at fdopie at gmail.com and share your questions. I will repeat them on the show so people get the benefit of your question and my response. Invite me to speak and host the Fred Opie Show at your school, club team, or camp by emailing me at fdopie at gmail.com. Hosting a show is a great way for the oldest students who are interviewed to pass on positive peer pressure to younger students. And during the Q&A with the audience, I share a perspective I wish I had when I was younger. Now back to the show. Question about your son. So he goes on to Washington State. He's a wide receiver. He suffers a number of injuries during his college athletic experience. Tell us about that, the injuries he suffered and the support you and your and, and his mom uh, gave him and the decision for him to stop playing football ultimately before he graduated. He ended up having, a, I think it was four concussions. And the fourth, fourth one occurred his senior year, I believe was the second, may have been the second or the second game, second game of the season. Quasi cleared the protocol. He was still having uh, headaches. We were just trying to figure out, you know, well, what does he want to do at this point? How does he feel now? So this ended up being probably one of the most difficult decisions he ended up having to make, but it was also it was also ended up being a reality check for him because you know he's going through the protocol, and while he you know he sat and looked, and he says, you know what? He goes, I I love football, but I'm not in love with football. He realized that there's other things to life that he still wanted to be able to do and enjoy. That were that he felt were much bigger than much bigger than football. I want to be able to enjoy those other things in life, and physically be able to function. And I let him talk himself through the process. It has to be. It still has to be his decision. He's a grown. He's a grown man at this point. I I know what I wanted to do, and I think I know what's best for him. But I also don't want him to ever be in a situation where he's Later on in life, second-guessing himself, saying, I could have done this, I could have done that, I wish I would have done this, wish I would have done that. How would you have handled this if he was a freshman and this happened? I would have handled it the same way. I have always told my kids, if you went up to either one of my both, the son, son, daughter, if you go up to one of them and says, okay, what, 
what does your dad tell you about consequences? And they'll, they'll sit down and say, oh, okay, well, he always says, well, with every choice, there's a consequence. He tells me to think about the consequences, uh, both good and bad, of that choice. Because if he can live with, if you can live with the worst consequence of that choice, and you're okay with it, then go ahead and move forward with it. And if you don't think you can live with that worst consequence, you need to change your path, a direction that you're going in. If a kid is 18, 19 years old, does he or her have the ability to think about the consequences in a wise way? I think they do. If it's something that you start out with them earlier, um, you, if, if that's the mindset that you get them thinking in early and you get them used to making decisions that way, anything like if you start them out early in terms of thinking about those things and at least jotting them down, that's going to be a process that they use. They've got to answer that question. We as parents want to protect our kids. We play those sports. Things are going to happen. We now have enough information to know that as a child, when you get a concussion, it makes you prone to a better chance that it happening again and again and again when you're young. And that, you know, we know this now. So the, you know, the fact that I think, I think football and I think even some of these other contact sports like lacrosse or like ice hockey, you grew up playing ice hockey, I know that. Some of these sports may go the way of football, I mean, go the way of boxing in the sense that boxing is generally the kid who comes from the roughest neighborhood with the least amount of education and they get in that ring and do that kind of stuff. I think football as educated parents they're going to opt their kids out because they know more versus parents who are not exposed to this information. And I'll give you for an example, classmate who parents were not very educated and the boy loved football and the boy had multiple uh, concussions in fourth, fifth and sixth grade. And the parents never pulled him out. Now, at the same time, he had teammates multiple concussions and the parents were much more educated much more aware of the situation and they just pulled the kid out of the sport and that was it for sports until anymore versus the other one well he's really he's doing really good the team's really good and he loves football and let him keep playing when you when you look at those situations it really makes you know a parent have to think what's the best choice in the long run and they're right i agree there's a point where a child has to make these choices. But I'm also thinking about the psychologists who say that a child's frontal cortex, particularly the male, doesn't come together with ability to weigh consequences until probably about the age of 25 or thereabouts. That's why we have child soldiers uh, being recruited by people because you give that kid a gun and you load them up on some marijuana or some, some other drugs, they'll do just about anything because they don't have the ability to, to choose and make choices based on consequences. Whether it's 8, 9, 11, 12, whatever. But in, in that situation, I, I completely agree. For a college kid, he's going to look for the parent to, uh, for guidance, you may get express your opinion. It's going to ultimately be up to that kid to, just, to say, okay, I'm going to take my parent's advice. Or he's going to say, you know what, mom, dad, while I completely acknowledge what you say I, and I hear you, I'm still going to go out on the field one more time. 18, there's going to be very little you can do to stop him, whether, whether, whether you tell him to or not. My son knew 
how I felt. I wanted he he knew I wanted him to stop, and that was and that was that was also part of me sitting him down and saying, "Hey, what do you what are you going to do?" He knew when I said, "What are you going to do?" You have not made it through your concussion protocol. Ultimately, my son wanted to go to law school. I love football. I'm in love now with my new goals and aspirations, and he wanted to go to law school. And he, you know, ultimately he wants, 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 he says, you know what, I want to, be, I, I want to be a judge. At what level? The highest level he can get to. He wanted to be able to get into the best law school that he, that he could. He goes, I need, mentally, I need my brain to be able to do that. So he made the decision. He says, okay, well, in order to be able to do that, I need to, I need to stop now. So he stopped. He ended up, um, you know, using the, using the second half of that year to study for his LSAT. He, he got into he got into four of the top ten you know uh, four of the three three of the top ten uh, law schools nationally. He ended up choosing he went he he he's at uh, at Bolt Law School uh, Cal Berkeley at Berkeley, finishing up his second year, doing great there, and he loves it. He doesn't have any regrets in his decision. Made my choices in life is by just thinking about the consequences of my choices. Love what you're saying. To me, it I, I would liken it to the importance of financial literacy, that if you want your, chi- your kids to have financial literacy, you got to start young. And what you're talking about, if you want your kids to have decision literacy, you got to start young. And unfortunately, if you make all of the choices for your child, even at the college level, they will never develop decision-making literacy. Exactly. They've got it. At some point, you've got to let go. You're making choices for them all the way up until they get out of college. It's too late, and they go out and they still make bad choices, both in financially and their spending, and they they have nothing to show for it afterwards. They go out and make bad choices in terms of who they associate themselves with, you know, what they're doing, who they're running around with, and they end up they end up losing everything. They spent all this time and effort putting into it, and now they've got nothing, you know, now they've got nothing to show for it. I I think every every college athlete need to take financial management class. They, that's the first thing they should put them into, you know, coming into. That should be a, a required course, first thing they come into as a freshman. You need to understand finance. Three classes I think should be required for all college graduates. Financial literacy, uh, choice or decision-making literacy, and then I think cooking literacy. I, you know, the fact that you could go out in society and you can't prepare food for yourself, to me, you're, you're, not, you're not prepared for life. I do like the fact that the Ivy Leagues, if my understanding is correct, is that you cannot graduate from any Ivy League schools unless you can pass a swimming test, which I also think is a tremendously smart thing to do to make part of your college curriculum. What point? You have to you have to pass a uh, you have to pass a swimming test. The cooking literacy ones. My mom. My mom actually said my sons will always know how to cook, and you know you will know how to wash and iron your own clothes. So she made sure that we knew how. <laughs> To at least cook something. Yeah. We knew how to we knew how to clean our clothes. You have to depend on anyone to show you how to do that. Now it wasn't necessarily all healthy cooking because my mother's from the south, so they they did a whole lot of fried chicken and all those other things. Later later on in life, learned about uh, the, the the good aspects of cooking, the healthy cooking, and things that you need to uh, really pay attention to uh, that you should have paid attention to when you're younger, but definitely as you get older. Preparing your child to succeed 
and not being scared to let them fail. I think failure is a great teacher. You support your kids, but you don't want them in a situation where they think failure is the end of the world because it's not. I mean, some of the the best discoveries uh, scientifically uh, happen because of failure and that failure is a part of the process of learning how to get better, learning how to get smarter. And parents, don't be scared to let that happen. I would agree with you. You learn through both your achievements as well as through your, the things that you, that, that you fail at. And it's, it's how you respond to those failures that, that matter. Not let them get you down, but pick it, you learn to pick yourself up and move forward. I think sometimes we, are, we have such a, a soft landing uh, that we create for these kids and they're not learning anything. You know, I, I always tell the parable of the eagle. The eagle in nature builds its nest and put some hard rocks underneath at the bottom of that nest. And when that eagle, that baby eagle grows to a certain weight, that nest becomes uncomfortable. And that eagle is out of there going to establish his or her own life. And parents, we need to do the same thing. It can't be so comfortable at home that your child is 30 years old still living in your basement. You hear me? As I tell my two kids who I love dearly, the only two people staying in this house long-term are your mother and I. I am training you to go and not to stay. And I think that's very wise when it comes to teaching your child how to make decisions, whether it be about where they're going to go to college or what they're going to do when they get in college, including changing their major, deciding whether to play or not. When someone has just told you that you've had multiple concussions and you're now putting yourself at peril. The best interest of the child is going to be made by the child and by the parent together. That's a wrap for this show. Thanks for listening. To hear more content like it, go to fredopi.com. If you have questions about advertising and sponsoring this show, contact us at fdopie at gmail.com. That's fdopie at gmail.com. I recently read your wonderful book, Start With Your Gift. I can't stress enough how much I wish this book was in the hands of every high school and college-age student, as well as their parents, coaches, and mentors. We must get real with having the conversation that not everyone should go to college. Not until you know what skill you need to develop, you shouldn't even go. How sad it is when an 18-year-old who was pushed into college and is not intellectually or emotionally prepared to attend is asked to leave by the school or their parents because of a low GPA and then they're stuck paying back twenty dollars to $40,000 worth of student loan debt. As a 57-year-old woman who has raised three kids to young adulthood, ages 22, 14, and 26, I too have benefited from reading it and now feel better about myself. The lines that really resonated and impacted me were the following. College degrees don't end feelings of insecurity. Hurt people hurt people. All work is honorable. Get the knowledge you need to exercise your gift and make an impact on the world around you. Your job cannot meet all financial commitments and satisfy all our needs. Lisa Kokito. Start With Your Gift is available on Amazon as an ebook, paperback, and as an audiobook.